it's symbolising the change that's occurred. And we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning in this message that <clears throat> comes out of John chapter 6. So let me pray before you sit down. Um, I'm kind of excited about this message because it's exciting me. Uh, that's a good thing. At least the pastor's inspired by his own message. So hope, hopefully I can pass that on. Thank you, Lord. So Jesus, we just do pray that you'd open our hearts, our ears, Lord, that we would get excited about your word. That is life. And so we pray, Father, for every set of ears that are listening here in the auditorium, for those that have joined us online this morning, we would have an incredible time just diving into John chapter 6. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's appreciate the team. Great work this morning, guys. Thanks so much. You can have a seat. You may be seated. God bless you. You've already done that. You're pretty quick. Whew. Man, you guys are moving today. Um, John chapter 6, when I started looking at this message, I thought, oh, it's kind of got to keep a bit of a baptism semi-idea focus in the background, and as I delved into it, I didn't have to keep that in the background at all. John 6 is a phenomenal chapter. It's a lengthy chapter in John's Gospel, um, which probably is indicative that it's an important, actually, teaching that's within it. I've got a couple of questions to start with, though, this morning, just to get you thinking. Uh, Not in chapter 6. The wedding at Cana. Read about it earlier. We preached about it a few weeks ago, I think. Why did that miracle get recorded as the first miracle, turning water into wine. Just hold that thought. You don't have to shout out answers. It's a rhetorical question from the preacher. Then if I looked around the room and I said to, well, I've got to pick on somebody, Aaron. Okay, Aaron's sitting over there minding his business. I want you to turn water into wine. What would you do? Hold that thought. If I asked you, Jordan, I want you to turn water into wine, what would you do? Do you want me to actually answer? Yeah. I wouldn't be able to do it in my own strength. I would ask Jesus instead. Okay, fair answer. Fair answer. Just set you up. (laughs) Dougie, what would you do if I asked you to turn water into wine? This is a really easy answer to this question, by the way. Pray pretty hard, I think. Huh? Pray pretty hard, I reckon. Nope. Well, oh, that might help. <laughs> you know what I'd do? I'd plant a vineyard. Yeah? How do you turn water into wine? You put water into a vine. Right? Why did Jesus turn water into wine? Because later on, he's going to tell us in chapter 15, I am the vine. Say, I am the vine. I'm the vine, and you are the branches. The whole structure of the Bible is an intricate, woven, interconnected set of truths that the more you dig, the more you go far out. I've been reading the Bible as what I would call a semi-informed adult since I was about 15. I wasn't an adult, but bear with me. 50 years I worked out, that was. I've been reading the Bible and trying to get my head around it for 50 years, and I don't think I've even scratched the surface. It is one of those books, one of those incredible, because it's Jesus, it's one of those things that you can spend as an endeavour just applying yourself into and never ceasing to be amazed what comes out of it. That, that idea about the vine just popped into my head preparing this message. 
And I'm thinking, you know, because, and why it popped into my head is, because I started with Jesus and the miracle in John chapter 6, where he rocks up, he's been teaching people, they've got 5,000 people harassing him. Uh, I've got a picture you can put up, Gav, of a place that um, apparently you're reading one of the commentaries that um, they think John kind of mixed up the two stories of the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. And when we were in Israel, this space, place just out of Capernaum, um, is where the Sermon on the Mount is alleged to have happened and possibly where the feeding of the 5,000 happened, but more likely is on the other side. That's Lake Galilee, by the way, or the Sea of Galilee there. Um, this is in 2014, so. Um, not back when Jesus was around. He didn't have cars parked on the side of the hill <laughs> or a motorway going down the side of the valley either. Um, but just to put it in context, this is the sort of place that he walked in. Side of a hill, the lake. It's possible that the actual miracle, this particular, um, because it talks about crossing over, this is on the, uh, let me get my bearings right, <sighs> western side of the lake. It's possible they actually, this miracle happened on the eastern side, but the Accounts in the Gospels are a little bit confusing. But anyway, just put up the other picture and we'll leave this one up. This, this was up in, there's a church up in the area where that um, Sermon on the Mount was supposed to have been preached. And that just gives you a picture of where Nazareth is on that rock as a map and the route up through there past Tiberias and uh, to Gennesaret and then Capernaum. And so the miracle might have happened over on the other side of the rock, of the lake, picture on the lake there. So just leave that up there so you know what we're talking about, because Jesus is the rock. A bit corny, but anyway. <laughs> Let me read chapter 6. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed in the healing of the sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, he said to Aaron, he said to Anna, he said to like, what I really love about Jesus is he's a little bit naughty. It wasn't sinful, but he was naughty. Because this, this, this is a setup. He says to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? I want to say to you, as much as Jesus loves you, and he does, there are going to be occasions when he sets you up because he wants you to learn something. Wow. If you've got a teacher that you can recall if you're my age at school that you actually remember who was good at teaching you, they set you up. They set you up to learn. They set you up to go, aha. So Jesus is setting Philip up here to actually have an aha moment because his response is exactly like we would say. Uh, and it says there, he asked him this only to test him for already had in mind what he was going to do. And Philip goes on to say, well, it would be a half a year's wages to feed these people just one mouthful. And Jesus is about to do this spectacular miracle of multiplication. And so what we've got out of our scent motive, which I introduced a few weeks ago with uh, uh, surrendering, the encounter or being in the presence, entering into the presence of God, navigating obstacles and problems in life and the timing of God's perfect. Um, today's message is really centred around the issue of entering into his presence. So what Jesus is going to show these people and his disciples is just, and he relentlessly uses normal things. So at the wedding of Cana, back a few chapters, he used just normal old water, converted it into supernatural 
and normal wine, but it was a supernatural demonstration of a truth about water and blood, which is what the gospel's about. And so Jesus is continuously sowing visual and story narratives um, into the lives of the disciples and the crowd, trying to show people that there's a need to shift from one place to another with regards to where we live and with regards to sin. And so this miracle happens because Jesus is present. I want to say, if you want a miracle, you've got to get into the presence of God. You've actually got to be entering in or letting him enter in to our circumstance. So what issues is Jesus about to deal with? Enough bread, number one. Everyone in his presence will eat to their fill. If you're feeling a little drained, dry, unfulfilled, bored with life, kind of at the end of your rope, this story is for you. Because Jesus wants to take your wherever you're at and enter in and turn it into more than enough. So you actually start to feel buoyant, start to feel full, start to feel content without a change to circumstance or means. It's nothing to do with what we have and haven't got. It's to do with him being present with us. The cost of enough bread is beyond our ability or willingness to pay. We can't actually pay for the bread that he's going to supply because he's, he's leading up to a bit more of a teach in the latter part of this chapter, chapter 6. This is the setting the tone. We're talking about bread. And like you and me, the disciples are thick. They think he's talking about bread like you eat bread. And he's not. He's talking about bread himself. He's talking about, I am the bread of life, he goes on to say a little bit later on. Anyway, in his presence, five loaves and two fish are enough. Let me say that again, in his presence. Sometimes when we look at what we've got in life and we go, that's not enough. It might not be something physical. It might be, I don't have enough confidence. I don't have enough intelligence. I don't have enough, or it could be, resource to do this, that or the other. But what if the key to having more than enough is as simple as letting him enter, getting close to God, entering into his presence? How do you do that? Prayer, reading the Bible, worshipping, hanging out with people like this in church. That's how we get into his presence. Our worship team, week in, week out, leads us on a journey I think, amongst other things, of not only worship and praise, which God deserves all the time, but they help us to get to a place where he, by his spirit, will enter our circumstance. It's kind of like opening the door and inviting him into your home. Say, come in, Jesus. When Jesus comes in, things happen. When Jesus comes in, the pantry fills up. When Jesus walks in, the water from the tap turns into, into wine. That'd be a nice day. Anyway, I'll move on from that. <laughs> and fourthly in this story, there's enough left over for every tribe in Israel. God's, later on, I think Paul recalls these words, he desires that none should perish and all should come to a knowledge of Christ. Like when the house of God pursues the presence of God, then the house of God is abundant, the people in it are happy, the people in it are full, and those that come in that are broken, lost, confused about the purpose of life, walk into a place where there's leftovers for them. There's an abundance for all. There's not 
we're not going to run out of God's love for broken people. We live in such a troubled world, such a messed up world. Uh, and the season that we're in is, is complicated, but it's in no way, shape or form can outrun the love of God. He can't outrun the resource of God. He can't outrun the ability for churches like ours, churches around the world that are preaching Christ. This is time for our finest hour. Those of you who got baptised this morning, make no mistake, you guys are living in the most exciting times in history with the power of God, his anointing, his call on your life to actually bring change to our community. You know, we live in such a, a brutal world today. I was thinking about as these guys were bat- being baptised this morning. We live with this reality as Christ followers. We are guilty as all heck for our sin. We could list all of our shortcomings. We could have a list plastered on the door of the church or on the, the door of the courthouse. Some of us might have even found ourselves in the courthouse and, and trouble with, at the laws of our land. But in our country, once you get convicted of a crime, even when you do the time, you have got a criminal record. Not so in the kingdom of God. There is no record. Jesus took the record and tore it up. So when we look at people getting baptised, we see people who are declaring that the waters of baptism, the water represents judgment. I'm going to get to that in a minute. The water represents judgment. And we don't leave the baptismal candidates in the water, underwater until they drown. We actually put them into the water as representing God's judgment and we lift them out representing Christ's victory over death, washed clean and the list is sinking to the bottom of the pool. And so there is no criminal record on your life, Aislinn. Isn't that nice to know in God's kingdom? Let me ask you another little tricky question. Why, so moving on from the bread, why does Jesus walk on water? This is another loaded question, by the way. Why is this story in there? It's like the most bizarre story out. Jesus walking on water. Disciples are freaking out. They think it's a ghost. John's gospel doesn't go into as much detail as the others. Like in one of the other gospels, Peter gets out and says, Oh, Lord, can I come and join you? He says, Come on then, jump out the boat. And Peter walks on the water temporarily. Say temporarily. But Jesus, he's just walking on the Why is he walking on the water? Uh-huh. Why is that story in there? And he turns water into wine. We're on a journey of discovery here this morning, folks. He turns water into wine. Noah's Ark, Old Testament. In the Bible, one of the many things that water can represent is judgment. The whole story of Noah's Ark is about the water where everybody on the earth, except for Noah and his family, who were floating, say floating, they weren't walking on the water, they were floating on the water in an ark. The rest of humanity is condemned to death, wiped off the planet. How that worked and what it looked like in the physical realm, I've got no idea, but the story is actually more probably important about what it's saying than what it's conveying fact-wise. I'm not saying it's not a fact, I'm just saying the issue is the water is judgment. So when Jesus turns water into wine, he's saying the judgment of God on your sin is now going to be covered by my blood. My blood is what actually changes you. And so we get judged but declared not guilty. 
It's not like God just, oh, he pretends, oh, Bruce didn't really say that, did he? Oh, he didn't really do that, did he? No, no, what happens in heaven is Jesus says, he's with me. That's because he's changed the water into wine. We've got to understand the transaction there. And now, to answer my second question, why did he walk on water? Because he, A, is the son of God and perfect, and he doesn't, can't walk. I mean, he can't go into a place of judgment. He's above it. He's above being judged. So he's able to walk on the waters of judgment because he's the son of God and he's perfect. Peter, by faith, Jesus rebukes him for not having enough faith when he started to sink. Peter, by faith, showed people with faith can walk on water. Not physically necessarily. He did physically. But you can walk. In other words, you're above judgment. It's You've been judged and found not guilty. When you walk by faith, you're walking on water for the rest of your life. You're set free. You're no longer bogged down by sin and shame. You're no longer full of guilt. You've got nothing on you except Jesus' love and you're walking on water for the rest of your days. Is this good preaching or what? Come on. I got so excited preparing this message. I'm thinking, what's in this message? Jesus and he said, well, get this, you little so-and-so. Wally, yes. So Jesus walking on water is not so much about the miracle of walking on water, which is phenomenal. It's more about him being above and beyond judgment and saving people. And so... Don't ever underestimate the power of the baptism, the symbolism and the reality of baptism is getting down to a place of God's actually dealt with my sin. He's actually taken it off me. And by the power of Jesus' name, Ephesians describes this beautifully, he's raised us up to walk on water. So when anybody asks you, can you walk on water? From now on, you're going to say, yep. You betcha I can. Maybe not the River Murray, but I can walk on water. Well, you might be able to walk it there at the moment. There's logs, house, floating pontoons, who knows. So entering Jesus, encountering Jesus or entering his presence immediately deals with judgment and delivers you to his new creation. So finishing up very quickly. The third part of this, after he walks on water, Jesus launches into this lengthy teaching that says, I am the bread of life. So he starts the chapter with a miracle about bread and finishes the chapter about bread. And then he introduces the whole idea, if you've got to eat the bread, me, and drink my blood. People start going, he's, they do, they literally started thinking, he's talking about cannibalism. He's lost the plot. He's, he is not, we're a bit confused. And it goes on to say a whole bunch of people deserted him. And he finishes the chapter with him saying to his disciples, do you guys want to go and rack off as well? Because what he's talking about seems to be so intricately woven between the physical realm of actual bread and actual water and actual wine to represent something that's way more significant than that. And people reacted to the physical. And I want to put that as a word of warning to you. Do you react to your physical? When what is it possible that your physical circumstances 
are actually God's instruments in your lot in life to help you see a spiritual truth about where you are, who you're with, where you belong, and what your destiny is. And he's saying, if you eat of me, in other words, you let my presence come into you, if you let my blood wash over you, you will find your life filled with contentment. You'll feel your life filled with a sense of satisfaction. You'll feel your life filled with this incredible sense of cleanliness. I've been washed. Come out of the waters of baptism this morning. Some people's testimony beyond that day, when we speak to them down the track, what was that like? I just felt so pure. I just felt so released from all of the gunk from life. That's because that person's about to start walking on water. Why don't we stand to our feet? Yeah. I'm going to keep asking God to give me those nasty, naughty questions. I, I like them. Some people find my preaching a little bit less than directive at times because I'm not a directive. I don't like giving orders from the pulpit. I like to give lots of chewable meat, bread, a meal. Something you can chew on. Go home and go, did he really say that? What was that question again? I just hope, let me pray. Father, I pray that something that's been said in this last 20 minutes will continue to be a meal we return to during the week. And Lord, next time we have a slice of bread or a piece of toast or eat something, even today as we go out celebrating with family and friends over baptisms, when we're eating, help us to remember that even in that simple thing we do every day, you want us to ponder spiritual matters, eternal life, being in the kingdom. Lord, next time we drive past the vineyard, which is really easy to do here in the Adelaide Hills, remind us that we're looking at a miracle working machine there, plant. It takes water out of the ground and turns it into grapes that can become wine. You are the vine. And in your presence, that can happen in a blink. For a vineyard and a vineyard, that can be years in the making. But we can do it physically. And so I pray, Lord, that we would look for miracles in guidance, direction, that you enter into our circumstance. I especially pray for your blessing over all the people who are baptised this morning. Lord, that you would establish your kingdom, the throne of God, in their hearts afresh. They'd walk with you as we prophesied and spoke over them after they came out of those waters. Lord, that you bring so many miracles to pass around them in Jesus' name. Father, I thank you this morning for those that are still searching, maybe listening online, but perhaps standing here in this meeting this morning who've not really worked out that they need to taste the bread of life, that is you. Haven't really worked out they need to drink the blood of the Lamb figuratively but to let that blood wash through their soul let them enter into a place of judgment that's holy and be declared not guilty because of Jesus and so Lord we stand alongside each other mindful of our journeys thankful for friends thankful for the house of God in his mighty name so I want to talk to anybody who's listening online or standing here right now you've never given your life to Jesus lots of things I've spoken about this morning 
I hope, have answered some questions you might have already been asking. But maybe it's just opened the door to more questions and there's nothing wrong with that. But one of the things I've wanted to emphasize this year is timing is, put, is um, a big deal for God. And you might be standing here thinking, well, I've been in church for a bit and I listen a bit. And why is that any different? Because God determines the time and the place. So if it's your time and place to say yes to Jesus, I need you to slip your hand up and say, Pastor Bruce, the day's the day for me. And we'd love to pray with you. I'm not going to get you to come out of your seat or come out in the front. Um, I would love you to come down to the front once we close the meeting and speak to me. Um, I'd love you to give your life to Jesus this morning. If that's you, you need to give me a wave that I can see. If you're online, you can't wait. Well, you can wave, but I can't see you. Uh, there's a little link on our website you can click to say, I, I'm interested in following Jesus. Can you help me? And uh, we'll get back to you during the week. Anyone at all this morning? Thank you, Lord. Well, Father, we thank you for the time together. In Jesus' name. Why don't you remain standing? We're going to sing this closing song together.